welcome. I hope everybody got the email where I included the instructions for the optional assignment. Everyone saw that? It's also up on the on the um, Dropbox or the, the Canvas. Are there any questions about that? I want to go over it in more detail um, next week, but we've got a lot to get through today. But I would entertain any questions if anybody has one burning. Otherwise, let's talk more about that. I'll, I'll talk a bit more about intervener factums, uh, show you one um, next week. But we've got just really a ton to get through. It's sort of a daunting prospect to get through procedural fairness in two weeks. And so I want to jump right into it today if we can. Um, the way I'm going to structure today is I'm going to largely follow the approach of the book chapter that we read in that I'll start with talking about independence and then move into bias and when I move into the bias discussion that's when I'll reach back and talk more about the Kretschian case that we touched on but didn't finish talking about last class. Um, at the outset I want just to we're going to be touching in a few times on this big picture diagram that I, I find so helpful for our mental framing of the forest of admin law as opposed to getting lost in the trees. Um, and you want to remember again that the whole task of admin law is for the judiciary to review the executive. And the idea of procedural fairness primarily right, is just the idea that courts are going to presume the jurisdiction of the executive was not intended to allow unfair processes. It's a presumption. Like any presumption, when we're talking about a presumption of interpretation of legislation, it can be rebutted by clear and direct language. If you clearly and directly say some process is not required, that process will not be required with one caveat if you can make a constitutional argument. But there, you are attacking the legislation, right? That, that's sort of the nuance there. If you're saying that the Constitution demands I be provided a process, and the legislation clearly says you will not get that process, you're making a constitutional argument. You're invoking the court's supervision of the legislature through constitutional law to challenge that law, which otherwise would deny you a process. But if you don't have a constitutional argument, and you usually will not, then what you're left with is this presumption that the courts will assume the legislature intended the executive to act fairly, and that is a rebuttable presumption. Does that all make sense on a big picture? Okay. How do you rebut it? How do you rebut the presumption? Yeah. You can straight up say, okay, the, the natural justice at common law, procedural fairness, um, would say you need to have reasons. I, the Baker says this is a decision of significant importance, and you're far enough along the spectrum that natural justice would demand that reasons be provided. The legislation says, the decision maker need not provide reasons. Then you've rebutted the presumption that the legislature intended 
to comply with the principles of natural justice and to not allow something unfair to happen. And there, the court, absent a constitutional challenge to that provision that says you don't have to have reasons, will just say, okay, sorry, you know, the legislation is clear. But going back to the enabling act. Exactly, exactly. And you know, if you, um, when in doubt, you know, go back to that enabling act. That's, you really can't better spend your client's money than in carefully reviewing that enabling act, knowing it inside and out. So there's one nuance to all this. And we're not going to get in depth into these right now, but I want to flag them because I don't want to make the impression be left that this is overly simple because nothing really is in admin law. Um, you have the Constitution, which is a way to directly attack the legislation. You have the common law rules around procedural fairness, which we will presume unless you can show that they're ousted by explicit language, the legislature intended, the executive follow. But you also have this strange class of statutes which are not part of Canada's constitution. They're not the Constitution Act 1867, 1982, or those various other statutes that are in the appendix to the Constitution Act 1982 that you may remember from first year. But there are these quasi-constitutional statutes that are ordinary statutes, but which the legislature says will apply in the instance of a conflict between that statute and another statute. The big one that's in my mind, and you may remember this vaguely uh, from your constitutional law text, the Canadian Bill of Rights. Do you remember the Canadian Bill of Rights? So the Canadian Bill of Rights is passed by the federal parliament in, I want to say, the 60s. And you might remember that until the Constitution is patriated through the 1982 amendments, only, of course, the imperial parliament, Westminster, could uh, pass constitutional documents, amend the Constitution. So the Canadian Bill of Rights is an ordinary statute. But what it says is every law of Canada shall be construed and applied so as to not abrogate, infringe, authorize abrogation, infringement, et cetera, et cetera, of the various um, rights guaranteed in the Canadian Bill of Rights. So what you have there is a statute that says, look, if you have another statute that seems to infringe upon these basic rights I'm guaranteeing here, don't interpret or apply it as doing so. You're still in the world there, then, of legislative intent. You're looking at the legislative intent globally, more broadly, encompassing not just the enabling statute, but also this quasi-constitutional 
document the Canadian Bill of Rights, which can, uh, which the legislature has specifically said will triumph in the event of a conflict. So when you're thinking procedural fairness, you want to think um, either in the worlds of legislative intent, or I'm trying to make that constitutional argument, but when I'm thinking legislative intent, don't want to be extremely narrow and only think about the enabling statute. I need to think of it within the broader context, which includes, if applicable, quasi-constitutional statutes. Now, there is not one of those in British Columbia. There's not a British Columbia uh, Charter or you know, Bill of Rights. There is a Quebec Bill of Rights, but there is not a British Columbia one. And the Canadian Bill of Rights does not apply to provincial statutes. So if you're in the residential tenancy world, you can't invoke the Canadian Bill of Rights. It only applies to matters within the federal parliament's jurisdiction. But you do still want to have in mind the full statutory regime when you're thinking about fairness and admin law. And a few statutes to have in the back of your mind, of course, are the Administrative Tribunals Act. We mentioned that before, and we are going to spend some more time on that. The Judicial Review Procedure Act, which we've mentioned before, and again, we're going to come back to. And also the um, human rights legislation because human rights legislation does have provisions that say that this will apply in the face of a conflict. So all that to say, it's, it can get complex, but you want to never lose sight of the big picture. Am I engaged in an exercise of trying to understand legislative intent, in which case, if the legislature clearly didn't intend something, some process, I just can't demand it. Or am I in the world of trying to frame a constitutional argument to say, I don't care if the legislature you know, clearly intended I don't get this process. I get it because the Constitution says I do. Constitution triumphs. So, that sounds promising for making these big constitutional arguments in admin law. It's pretty rare that you can actually succeed with one. And the problem is fundamentally there isn't a generally enshrined constitutional right to a fair hearing in all circumstances. There isn't a general constitutionally enshrined right um, to well, there isn't a general constitutional right to a fair hearing in all circumstances. What there is, though, is a right if you can show that you have you know, triggered Section Seven or Section Eleven of the Charter. You may remember, though, of course, to show Section 7 rights have been triggered, 
you have to show a potential deprivation of life, liberty, or security of the person, right? So if you face a possible loss of life, liberty, or security of the person through an administrative law framework, then you could make a Section 7 argument, and you could say, you know, it's a principle of fundamental justice that you must comply with the procedures required by natural justice and procedural fairness. You could absolutely make that argument. The trouble is most administrative law proceedings are going to affect primarily um, you know, proprietary monetary interests and privileges as opposed to you know, your fundamental liberty. There are exceptions though. Extradition includes an administrative law component and certainly if you're facing extradition then your um, your life, liberty, security of the person could be at issue. In some immigration context they could be at issue. And these phrases are notoriously uh, you know, difficult to specifically define. Security of the person has seen a bit of an uptick in successful arguments in recent years for saying your security of the person is at issue. If there's an administrative law proceeding that affects your, your children, your ability to care for your children, where you're able to live, uh, these types of issues might trigger a Section 7 security of the person interest. So you want to have that in mind. As if there's, you know, don't, don't think it's outside the scope of possibility. But if you're in an ordinary, routine administrative law process, it's very unlikely you'll be able to invoke a charter right directly. And Section 11 rights, um, you know, they, they apply to people charged with an offense. So that's not ordinarily the case in an admin law process. So, I'm setting the stage for what we're going to get to in the, yeah? Doesn't housing kind of go to security person? Like if you're being evicted out onto the street from your department, yeah. isn't there a section seven? It's a great argument, and I think it's been unsuccessfully made. I don't have the case in, in mind precisely, but I, that triggers a recollection. But I, I absolutely think that's a legitimate argument to make, and potentially an argument that could have some more legs as the security of the person jurisprudence has sort of expanded in recent years, like Carter and um, PHS Insight, they both have um, taken security of the person, which was sort of the forgotten Section 7, right, and given it a little bit of new, new life. And so, yeah, I mean, the ability to choose where you live has been found to, found to affect security of the person. And so I, it's, it's not a big jump to say, you know, rendering my family homeless will affect the security of the person. And uh, so, yes, like that's exactly the type of thinking that you should keep in your mind. If, you're, if you were to say there's a residential tenancy procedure that violates natural justice, but is explicitly set out in the statute, and this procedure is just gonna really hurt my client, well, that's, you know, do that argument. You try to raise that in security of the person argument. Um, so yeah, I think there's a lot of room for creativity and we're going to get back into the intersection of the Charter and Administrative Law in a few weeks' time. And uh, the big theme of that week will be this is a growth area for Administrative Law, an area that's not fully thought out and there's a lot of potential for new and uh, I think ultimately successful arguments there. Um, so. 
Charter is sort of keep it in your toolbox, think about using it, um, but know that you may have difficulty showing a charter rights actually at stake in an admin process. And I want to jump into the idea of independence, which has been um, the subject of constitutional arguments drawing upon the law that says the Constitution guarantees judicial independence. And so when we're talking about these constitutional arguments for judicial independence, and the Ocean Park case is a very uh, important case for that subject, you want to think to yourself, we are talking about this, and when we're talking about this, we're in this other bucket of trying to attack the legislation itself, of trying to get around a clear statutory um, indication that some right or some indicia of independence will not be satisfied in this case. So the idea of independence and the idea of bias are the main subject for today's lecture. They're closely related, but they are distinct concepts. So bias is about the predisposition of a decision maker to find in a particular way. We'll talk about institutional and uh, individual bias. We'll talk about the different uh, sorts of bias that can creep into admin processes in a second. But fundamentally, it's about, does it seem like this decision maker is going to decide this case for some reason other than the reasons that are actually relevant? to this determination? Are they bringing something irrelevant into this that's going to taint the decision? Independence, on the other hand, is closely related because a lack of independence can sure make you feel like there's going to be a bias. But independence is a separate and structural guarantee. It's the idea that this person is free of interference and there are guarantees that they're free of interference. And it arises and is developed when the courts are, are talking about themselves, about the, the judiciary and the judicial independence uh, notion which has become constitutionalized, found in the Constitution, found to be um, a unwritten constitutional principle, and also found to be explicitly guaranteed in the Charter. And when we're talking about judicial independence, we are talking about Another first-year concept, separation of powers. Now, not to be confused with the division of powers, you know, section 91, section 92, let's go sort the heads of power. Mm -hmm. Separation of powers, we're talking about 
judiciary, legislature, and the executive. And that they each have their own role, and they need to be free to properly discharge that role without undue influence from one of the other bodies. And the judiciary has closely guarded its independence, has demanded that it be seen to do its work free from interference from the legislature or the executive. Now, judicial independence has uh, been described as requiring three hallmarks. Security of tenure, financial security, and administrative or institutional control. Security of tenure is one we're going to talk quite a bit about, and it's the idea that judges can't be dismissed in a way that would give rise to the implication that they've been fired because someone didn't like the decisions that they've been making. The way that we accomplish that in Canada, of course, is by having appointments that will persist during good behavior until the age of 75, and a significantly burdensome process for removing judges for bad behavior. Um, there's an investigation by the Canadian Judicial Council, an administrative tribunal, which ultimately would lead to a recommendation to discharge that person, which would have to be um, accepted and ratified by, I believe it's both Parliament and the Senate. It's a burdensome process. Strong security of tenure. You remember there's also the financial security idea, which I love, and I made this joke a million times, but I mean the idea that they said there's a constitutional guarantee that I get paid really well. Wasn't <laughs> <laughs> my idea. Just <laughs> happens to be there. Uh, is is great. Um, the third one is the institutional or administrative control. And that's the idea that you need to have freedom to run your court as you will. And this has its obvious extension to you can't come and tell me how to make my decisions. But it also has more subtle implications. Um, like, you can't tell me which judge will be assigned to which case. That has to be done by the courts themselves. And then there's, you know, it's been taken further to, to require certain amounts of funding and certain amounts of support. Um, there's some arguments that you require a certain uh, cohort of judges, a number of judges under this principle, otherwise you lose the ability to maintain their function. So this is an area where there's quite a few component rights that get at this idea of institutional control over the courts themselves. So tenure, lots of money and administrative control, that's the hallmarks of judicial independence. And those are guaranteed by the Constitution. So if the executive, sorry, if the legislature were to pass the, um, you know, judges, uh, judges shall, you know, 
be fireable at pleasure act of 2021, that would be unconstitutional. The courts would not enforce that act. They would say, sorry, you, you can't remove security of tenure through bare legislation. The only way to do that would be to amend the Constitution. This is a constitutional principle. If you want to change the security of tenure of judges, you have to amend the Constitution. So you've got this constitutional argument from the judiciary about independence, and you're saying, all right, let's, um, let's import it to admin tribunals. They're doing things that really look a whole hell of a lot like what courts do. They're adjudicative bodies. They're deciding issues of fundamental importance. Ought they not to have the same guarantees that we've said are constitutionalized for judges? And that's the argument and the issue around judicial independence that we're going to tackle. And when you're looking at the board, there should be an issue that kind of jumps out to mind where you're like, okay, I get the idea the judiciary needs to be independent from the legislature and the executive. But when I'm talking about admin tribunals, they're part of the executive. So they need to be independent from the executive that they're a part of. That's a trickier concept. When you root judicial independence in the separation of powers, you start to see that it's not that easy to transpose judicial independence into administrative tribunal independence because you don't have the same just clear-cut separation of powers basis to make that argument. So, not only do you locate admin tribunals within the executive branch, you also often find their relationship with quintessentially executive functions is very closely tied. That there is some aim that Parliament is trying to accomplish that is just quintessentially something that is not traditionally the realm of the, of the courts, but is really about administering the laws in this complex state that we have, administering rights and privileges, and that there's a component of administering those privileges that resembles or is an adjudicative uh, process. And the great you know, Ocean Port, I think, hits upon a, a classic example. A few of the cases come out of this context of, of liquor permits, liquor licenses. And of course, you know, Ron Corelli is the start of it all. And traditionally, you know, 1867, you weren't going to the Supreme Court or the Superior Court and saying, you know, my lord, having a wedding this weekend, I'd really like to have a uh, you know, we'll sell some beers there. The whole idea of this complex liquor control is very much a, you know, the 20th century administrative state creation. The idea that we're going to have a state monopoly on liquor, we're going to tax it significantly, we're going to have regulations and laws in place to minimize the societal harms of this product that 
you know, we, we use and, and are going to tolerate the ills to get some perceived benefits. That's really executive stuff. And just deciding who's able to have the benefit of being able to engage in the business of liquor sales or the privilege of having a temporary ability to serve liquor. You're an executive function here. You're really not in a judicial function, even though adjudicating individual disputes kind of looks judicial. You're adjudicating. You're still accomplishing an executive function. So, again, you want to think not only is a separation of powers a, a reason that you have a bit of a difficulty transposing this idea of a requirement of independence into the um, administrative law framework, you also want to think that the very nature of what's being accomplished is often quite different from the nature of things that are accomplished by judges and where the judicial independence sprang from. And I think we all might intuitively have an easier time accepting that when someone's adjudicating whether or not some privilege will be afforded to somebody, um, you know, I, I don't necessarily need the person who's stamping my liquor permit to make 300 grand a year. Like, it, it doesn't, I can feel okay about the decision even if that hasn't happened. So there's just naturally, I think, a feeling that there's, there's a, uh, there can be more flexibility built into this structure. So I'm going to come back to the idea that the constitutional guarantee doesn't easily leap from the judiciary into the executive, leap from the judiciary to the admin tribunals. And I, I hope that you're, you're I, it feels like you're with me, but this is, I'm really bouncing a bit between the constitution and the, the interpretation of statutes and the ideas of procedural fairness at common law. But that's where I'm jumping back into. Because these ideas that a tribunal needs to have independence are a component of common law procedural fairness rights. Which means, in the absence of legislation requiring otherwise, the courts will presume independence was the intention of the legislature. But what does that mean? How much independence? What are the hallmarks, the indicia of independence that we're going to say the common law requires, that fairness requires, natural justice requires? Well, you, you may sort of be one step ahead of me, and if you are, you're, you're really getting the hang of admin law. It's going to be contextual. It's going to vary in the circumstances. You're going to have to look at all the factors, the nature of the decision maker, the nature of the decision being made, the nature of the rights or interests at stake, to determine what the minimum amount of independence we would say the common law requires to make sure it matters fair. 
Uh, the book has a quote from the Matsqui case. The test for institutional independence must be applied in light of the functions being performed by the tribunal at issue, their requisite level of institutional independence, security of tenure, financial security, and in control, will depend on the nature of the tribunal, the interests at stake, and other indices of independence such as those of office. So you want to think that in essence, you're going to be looking at things that are akin to the Baker factors, or perhaps even directly applying the Baker factors, in trying to say that the nature of this decision is such that we must presume Parliament demanded stronger independence. And where this often, often comes up is in the security of tenure question. It often comes up um, not just because individual litigants raise security of tenure issues, but also unhappy tribunal members raise security of tenure issues when they're fired. Right, you're let go from your position with the residential tenancy branch. You say, hold on. You know, Parliament never intended for me to not have security of tenure. You can't just fire me at will. Where the courts have found, though, is that when we're talking about the security of tenure, There's a, a range that you could require. You could allow at pleasure dismissal. You could fire this person for any reason at any time. All the way up to, you could have lifetime appointments in the, in, while there's good behavior. In between that, you could have fixed term. You get five years, you get one year, you get three years. You could have, you will have this until the age of 75, 65, whatever it is. So there's a range of different options for the tenure you guarantee an admin decision maker. And generally speaking, the courts have said, don't like purely at pleasure, just saying you can be fired anytime. But we're okay with fixed terms. You get three years, you get five years, then you can be reappointed. But you want to think, okay, it's always contextual. So if I can make an argument that what is at issue is so fundamental, so important, so, um, so akin to a court-like process, it's something greater than a fixed term appointment's required, maybe I'll make that argument. So big pic your big picture framework you want to have, you want to think about independence is this idea that's closely related to but separate from bias. 
you want to think that this independence draws upon the ideas of judicial independence, tenure, uh, remuneration, and administrative control, and how much the common law is going to presume or, or require independence depends on a contextual looking at the nature of the tribunal, the functions being performed. So in the absence of legislation saying, you know, this is going to be the tenure, this is going to be the amount of institutional or administrative control, you go to the common law, you make those arguments, you draw upon the contextual factors. What about if you do have explicit legislation saying, you're only getting this, this tenure, you're not getting any more? Well, then you can't go to the common law anymore. You have to go to the Constitution, right? And that's where ocean port comes in. That's basically the idea of ocean port. So this is a um, relatively famous Supreme Court of Canada administrative law case. 2001, I believe, um, right after Justice McLaughlin became Chief Justice McLaughlin, she issues these, um, these reasons in ocean port, which um, I think are very indicative of the second half of her judicial career, where she does these just, it's really readable. I guess you haven't read it yet. It's, it's a kind of optional for next class. I, I assigned it, and I had forgotten the degree to which the book really goes through it in quite some detail. And so I, I'd recommend revisiting it when you look at the reading for next week. But you know, really, I think I sent an email saying really focus on the uh, Blenco and Taseco cases. But Ocean Port's a, a nicely written and in, interesting, interesting judgment. So what you had in that case is a hotel that's been found to have infringed some liquor laws. Maybe it's selling to minors, maybe it's staying open too late, maybe it's serving intoxicated people, I forget the exact facts. So the RCMP reports five infractions under the Liquor Control and Licensing Act. Subsequently, the Liquor Control and Licensing Authority imposes a two-day suspension. So just to you know, be good admin-law lawyers, you want to think, okay, what's the statutory scheme at issue? It's a Liquor Licensing and Liquor Control and Licensing Act. There's a decision maker, the authority, who can impose um, a suspension. They have the power to suspend the license. A license is a privilege. And then you note, OK, there's an internal appeal within the scheme. You can go to the Liquor Appeal Board. The Liquor Appeal Board holds a hearing de novo. That means that they just reconsider the matter entirely. They don't defer to the lower level authority's decision. And they confirm the suspension. They say, yep, two days. So then judicial review. And the issue is, well, does the Liquor Appeal Board have sufficient independence? And they say, there's a lack of security of tenure because the members serve at pleasure. They are at the low end of that spectrum 
of potential tenure. They're far away from your life. It's you can serve until I tell you otherwise. So Oceanport says, you know, Chief Justice McLaughlin, just as you cannot be dismissed for any reason apart from bad behavior until you turn 75, you know, so too is there a constitutional principle which guarantees at least that the people who are deciding my client's deep interests, of whether they have their license that is necessary for their business to thrive and succeed, so too they cannot have that decision be made by people who have the sword of Damocles hanging over their head and can be dismissed at any time for any reason that is not fair. And in fact, that goes beyond just not being fair in the common law sense that violates the Constitution. That's the argument that Oceanport grapples with. And what the court says is, look, I'm with you on the common law ideas of fairness, but it's ousted by explicit statutory language, and I don't agree with you. There's a constitutional principle of administrative independence you can grasp onto here. They make the point that, look, tribunals exist within the executive, and there's necessarily less separation between their function and other executive function than when we're talking about the courts and the executive. And they say, ultimately, it's up to the legislature to design the amount of independence that they want to assign to these admin tribunals. So the key passage is paragraph 27. And there, Chief Justice McLaughlin says, in my view, the legislature's intention that board members should serve at pleasure, as expressed in the act, is unequivocal. As such, it does not permit the argument that the statute is ambiguous and hence should be read as imposing a higher degree of independence to meet the requirements of natural justice, if indeed a higher standard is required. So pausing there, so what she's saying is, look, if it was ambiguous, make your common law argument that I need to presume the legislature intended higher degrees of independence to meet natural justice. If it's ambiguous, we're there, it's not. It's unequivocal. It clearly doesn't require that. She says, it's easy to imagine more exacting safeguards of independence. She's like, I get it. You could, you could do better. Longer, fixed-term appointments, full-time appointments, a panel selection process for appointing members to panels instead of the chair's discretion. However, in each case, one must face the question, is this what the legislature intended? And just pausing there, that's a good admin law thing to have in your notes like at the top. Is this what the legislature intended? If you can frame your answer on an exam to ask that question about legislative intent, you know, you're going to uh, be off on the right foot. Given the legislature's willingness to countenance at pleasure appointments with full knowledge of the process and penalties involved, it is impossible to answer this question in the affirmative. It's impossible to say the legislature meant that you don't that you get something more than an at-pleasure appointment when it says you get an at-pleasure appointment. She notes Justice Hutter concluded that the tenure enjoyed by board members was no better than an appointment at pleasure. However, this is precisely the standard of independence required by the Act. When the intention of the legislature as here is unequivocal, there is no room to import common law doctrines of independence 
however inviting it may be for a court to do so. So I read that passage carefully because I think not you want to have that internalized not just for this idea of independence, but for your broader understanding of what these procedural fairness rights are and how they interact with legislation. If it's clear and unequivocal something's not going to be provided, you can't import it no matter how inviting it may be to do so, unless you can get a constitutional argument there. And then she goes on to note, look, we don't have a quasi-constitutional guarantee at issue here. Recognizing that, there's no, no basis to chip away at the unequivocal language through saying there's a quasi-constitutional issue here. Um, she notes that there are there is jurisprudence importing the idea of judicial independence to the provincial courts. She says this is not like a provincial court. Can't draw an analogy there that could allow us to say that the Constitution requires this. And then she has her famous dicta, another important part of Oceanport. Says administrative tribunals are, in fact, created precisely for the purpose of implementing government policy. And that's the idea that the function of these executive bodies, even when they have an adjudicated aim or an adjudicated element, the function is to implement government policy. It's not to take on the role of the courts. As such, because they're implementing government policy as part of the executive, the notions of independence from the executive are less important or less salient or have less constitutional weight, if any. And this idea has been applied elsewhere, the idea that, look, think about admin tribunals, what are they doing? Well, they're implementing government policy set by the legislature. It's another good framing to have in your mind for a mid-law. Um, so that's the Oceanport case and the idea of the interface between common law independence and the Constitution and situating tribunals in the executive. Any questions on that? All right. Just going back, yeah. you, you said something about getting reappointed. If you have a fixed term, you can get reappointed. Yeah, absolutely. But, I mean, unless the statute says you can't. Yeah. But, but uh, how, usually. How do you reconcile the idea of being independent and then wanting to get reappointed? It's a great question, right? Isn't it? Wouldn't a appointment that would go until you're 75 give you more independence? Absolutely, it would. So it's, it's, it's on the spectrum. That's why a fixed term appointment is lower on the spectrum than until you're a certain age, which is lower still than a until you die appointment. So there's, um, yeah, it's a lower degree of independence afforded. And, and absolutely, I mean, fixed term appointments, um, they, they leave the tribunal members with the question of, am I doing something that's going to make me get reappointed? Am I doing a good, now there could be positive aspects to that. Um, boy, I better not just start phoning it in 
and not paying attention, not providing good reasons, and getting a bunch of complaints. But there's less, uh, you know, good aspects to that. I feel I better not go against the government because I'm about to get reappointed next month if, uh, if if they like me. So it's a dynamic that that you want to grapple. That's that's kind of why these independence ideas matter so much. Um, I'm going to just finish off with a few more points on independence, and then we'll take a quick break, and then we'll jump into bias. Um, uh, oh, yeah. In trying to clear my mind about these two ideas, mm -hmm. the premise, the adjudicated independence or lack thereof, and the bias. So I was trying to distinguish this lack of adjudicated uh, independence is an external factor imposed on the adjudicators or the, this, the person who makes decision. And the bias is kind of an internal incentive, which is based on their predispositions or, or inclination or any other factors which comes from their own mind and their own uh, conscience. So there are two ideas. That's a pretty good way to think about it. It's a bit more nuanced too because bias is a pretty encompassing subject that can get at some sort of more imposed ideas and independence and bias. They don't, they're not completely separate concepts. There's overlap. There can be lack of independence which leads to concerns around of bias, um, but generally speaking, that's a good way of thinking of it. You don't have to, to get an independence concern, you don't have to get any idea of predisposition to find one way or the other. The tribunal members can be unimpeachably fair in their, um, in their dispositions, but if they're sitting there saying, if I get, I'll get fired if I you know, find something against an individual, that just may be a structure that can't stand. So that, yeah, it, let's, let's get through bias, because I, that, to answer that question kind of requires me to discuss a bit more about bias, so I want to um, build up to it. Sure. Yeah. So before we leave independence, the book has a couple interesting cases that are mentioned, and I do, you know, I know, I know that this chapter in the book is long and is sort of hard to read. Um, there's, I found it, the first time I read it actually quite hard to read, and the second time I read it I found it a bit better. Um, to be honest, I think the dynamic here is the professor who wrote this, she really focuses on bias and independence in tribunals as a major part of her academic thought. So I think she wanted to get a lot of scholarship and a lot of ideas into this chapter, whereas people who are just like, okay, I'll, I can write about the Baker factors. They can do it in a more concise way. So it's, um, I appreciate you, you know, bearing through this chapter. Um, that said, I think there's a lot in there. Like there's a lot of really good stuff in there. Um, it's it's a chapter that when you you need to really deeply understand this stuff, um, you could find a pathway to a lot of knowledge through that chapter and the readings at the end. So. There's a few more cases. I don't want you to worry extensively about I better know the Keene case, I better know the McKenzie case for your notes, but the ideas help illustrate these concepts that we have talked about. Um, so the Keene case is interesting, I mean, really interesting facts, where you have a, um, 
individual who is a member of the tribunal, but not just a member, she's the president, not just any tribunal either, it's the Nuclear Safety Commission. I think it's that, something like that. I mean, I may have misnamed the tribunal, but nuclear safety is fundamentally their, their job. And she makes a decision which keeps a reactor closed for safety reasons. But that reactor is also creating medical isotopes. I didn't know that was a thing, but I guess the radioactive medical isotopes are very useful in a lot of uh, medical procedures. I've heard of that. I never really thought where they come from, but they come from nuclear reactors, I guess. And so the, the minister is upset about this decision and says, hey, like you're, what's going on here? We need these isotopes. You're keeping this reactor closed. Um, I disagree with your decision. They get into a, a bit of a spat about it. And ultimately, the upshot is she is removed from the position of president of the tribunal, but she gets to stay as a member of the tribunal. And so the question is, does that violate independence? A demotion within the tribunal itself? For the reason that you seem to be making decisions that they don't like. Ultimately, the court says it's okay that independence does not demand that this person be free of that kind of interference. And they say that because of the statutory language, which draws a distinction between her membership in the tribunal, which is for a fixed term and can only be taken away for bad behavior, and her status as president, which is purely at pleasure. And so they say, okay, there's a distinction drawn in the legislation, and I can't interpret the legislation as any other way than allowing this type of thing to happen. So, somewhat disturbing set of facts and illustrative of how there is a risk of interference by the, you know, someone also within the executive, the minister performing executive function. But interfering with the operation of this tribunal as an independent entity. But because the legislation is so clear, and because we can't import the Constitution, the court says it's okay. They uphold it. So the Keene case, have in the back of your mind, as sort of an outside example of how far this principle that um, we will you know, bend fairness to the legislation could go. And the book also talks about a really interesting case, Mackenzie out of British Columbia, Justice McEwen, who sort of, um, he sat in the, the Kelowna area for a really long time, recently retired, had tons of decisions that uh, ruffled feathers. He was a very feather ruffly sort of judge. And here you had a RTB adjudicator who was dismissed. And what happened was interesting here, and this is the, the argument you want to hold on to this for, and I don't know I don't want you to take away necessarily that the finding here is final and authoritative because this has not been followed in other jurisdictions, what happened in this case. 
it was appealed for the British Columbia Court of Appeal, but the appeal was dismissed as moot because the legislation had changed, which means there was no approval of the substantive finding. And the Supreme Court of Canada wouldn't hear the case. Uh, and I think you, you probably know you can't draw anything one way or the other from a refusal of leave to appeal. But what McEwen said was, well, dis resolving disputes between tenants and landlords about contracts and whether somebody can be evicted from a lease, this actually is not the type of thing that's traditionally the purview of the executive that was unknown to the courts at the time of Confederation. This is exactly the kind of thing the courts grapple with, or traditionally grappled with. People would come and say, hey, he's kicking me out of my house, but he's, it's unfair, it's a violation of the lease. That's sort of core judiciary stuff, is what he's saying. And so he accepts the constitutional argument, even in the face of Oceanport, that when the legislature takes a traditionally judicial function away from the judiciary and gives it to the executive, they can't, in so doing, evade the principles of judicial independence. You may be able to do that, and there's a whole other body of law, Section 96 Courts and Delegation, that I'll touch on a bit in the delegation class. But he's saying, look, maybe you can give this judicial function to the RTB within the executive, but when you're doing so, you're going to import the idea of judicial independence along with it. So this case is fascinating because it shows the way around Oceanport. Whether it's going to work or not, I can't tell you. But the idea hopefully makes a little bit of sense. That there's a difference between the executive creating a benefit program and having some adjudicative body within that um, broader scheme administer that program versus the executive saying for efficiency or other reasons we're going to take a judicial function and give it to the executive and in so doing we're going to strip away the constitutional guarantees of independence. Like I hope you can see the distinction there at least. So whether he was right in the application to the RTB, who knows? Whether the principle makes sense and will probably be um, relied upon successfully in the future, I think that's a much better chance. And we do see increasing moves to take things away from the judiciary and give them to the executive for um, efficiency reasons. And of course, it starts with the provincial courts, which are treated just as courts, even though they're creations of statute. But then it goes into things like the Civil Resolution Tribunal, which is taking over a lot of things that are court-like and which has been the subject of challenge, successful challenge, on the Section 96 courts issue. And you know, courts are so backed up, so unwieldy, the impetus to take things away from the courts and make them more accessible is, is almost overwhelming. 
But if you have to import the idea of judicial independence, you know, that may be an appropriate balance. Um, and finally, I just want to say before we leave independence, and I'm sorry, it's been a bit of a long first half of the class, but before we leave the idea of independence, I just want to emphasize, again, um, there's a trade-off, just like any procedural right, in guaranteeing a higher amount of independence. In cost and accessibility. to be as blunt as possible, I could hire four, I mean, I know the salaries, I could hire four RTV adjudicators for the cost of one judge. So if you have to have the same financial security for an RTV adjudicator, well, you've just quadrupled your salary costs and presumably you're gonna result in less people getting that job. If you have to have security of tenure, you're able to be less dynamic. You can't expand or contract your tribunal in accordance with changes in requirement and need. You're gonna be hesitant to hire out of concern the budget may constrain you later. And if you have to give more administrative controls to the tribunal, divorced from the legislation and divorced from the uh, executive's ability to sort of manage how the tribunal functions, you could have a tribunal go off on a lark. You could have a bad administrator at that tribunal who says, you can't tell me how to run this tribunal. I do it this way. And I mean, I'm going to get on my soapbox for a second, but there's huge problems with how the BC Supreme Court is run. Huge problems. Um, and it's, I think they stem from, in large part, it's being run by judges who don't know how to run something. Like, that's not why you go to be a, a judge, is to be a great administrator of a complex structure like a court. Courts are notoriously slow to change, notoriously slow to adopt new technologies. The most insane thing I've ever done, and most infuriating thing I've ever done, well, the second most infuriating thing I've ever done is sit in Supreme Court chambers. Have you ever done that? Anybody ever do that? Yeah, so you know, right? You go to chambers, presumably, you know, if you have a, if you have a short matter, you go first. If you have a long matter, you sit there, all day, right? Did you get Did you get on when you went? Um, I had to wait four times to get heard for one hour. You had to go four separate times. Yeah. Sit there all day. Yeah. And then you finally got heard the fourth time. Mm -hmm. and it was a one hour matter. A one point five. Yeah. A one point five. Makes my blood boil. It's so <laughs> badly run. It's insane. So COVID happens. And they say, okay, chambers need by phone. Like, great, let's have to sit there all day on phone. Like, no, you do, yeah. you do. You have to sit there all day on phone. We're not gonna change it. It's just gonna be by phone. But you still have to sit, we won't call you when your matter's there. We're just gonna say it on the conference line. So you still have to sit there all day. Like, it's idiotic. Nobody would choose to do that if they were designing this from an administrative, like, efficiency standpoint. And yet, it's the way the courts are run. So. Giving non-administrators who just want to adjudicate and be judges the role of administering things has its drawbacks. So I'm, what I'm getting at there is, again, don't think that when there's this push-pull between more fairness, less fairness, more independence, less independence, that 
it's an easy question. You should always err on the side of more process, more fairness, more and more and more. You can self-defeat by going too far. You really do have to strike the balance. All right, let's take the break. Um, I'm sorry, I've been really off on one today and I've got a lot to get through. So let's try to come back at 11.45. We'll be, take this kind of quick. All right, sorry about that. So, leaving independence and moving into bias. Bias is, as I said, related but separate concepts and it's a hugely important concept. Your clients are gonna want you to argue bias. You're gonna think there may be bias at times and bias really does exist. Like, and I think we're, as a society, becoming more aware of the degree to which we all possess biases. And we're also becoming much sadly more aware of the way particular groups suffer the brunt of those biases in a vastly disproportionate way. So is the law and bias is notoriously a really high hurdle to get over. Courts are so reluctant to say, anybody was biased for any reason. Courts even go so far as to get really mad at you if you make bias arguments. Uh, they, they will say, that's a spurious, you know, you're, you're coming to court, you're telling me that this person was biased. How dare you? And it, it can be intimidating, honestly, to say, you know, this person was biased. And you know what's even more intimidating? You're supposed to raise procedural fairness arguments with the person you're saying is being unfair. And that includes bias. So you're supposed to raise bias with the person you're saying is being biased and give them a chance to recuse themselves. And that is the hardest submission to make. Hey judge, you know, guess what? I don't think you can possibly be fair. But you're supposed to do it and you're not just supposed to do it, you have an obligation to do it, right? You have a, an obligation to your client to fearlessly raise that, to take the, 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 hopefully just a mean look, but more likely, you know, it's sort of a lashing. And so you wanna know what's a reasonable bias argument, where you're over that line into this is an argument that needs to be raised, and when you can say, listen, client, it's not going to be a successful argument, and I, I don't recommend that we allege bias in this case. Um, could be counterproductive because it will maybe turn the decision maker against us, which is ironic. But you know, you, you do want to think that way. That um, you know, any adjudicated function, any judge is just a person, and the best thing you can do for your client is make that person want to find for you. And saying that they're closed mind biased, you know, whatever it is, not a great way to start making them want to find for you. So bias, hugely important. An area that is growing in importance as we realize the degree to which bias permeates so much decision making. An area you will be asked to explore if you practice in this area. Or, I mean, this extends beyond a midline to just any kind of litigation. Um, so important and something that we should we should give ample attention to. There's two kinds of bias 
that you can assert, individual bias and institutional bias. In essence, the difference is individual bias is saying, this decision maker in these circumstances can't decide the case fairly. Institutional bias is saying that as a whole, there's some problem with this institution that gives rise to the perception that a lot of different people are not going to be able to decide this case fairly, this issue fairly. It's less um, awkward to raise institutional bias. It's not your fault. It's the structure. <laughs> but you want to raise the right one. So I'm going to get into those two concepts in greater detail. One thing we learned from Crutchian, which is uh, reiterated in the book, which is very important, is when we're in the admin land, the test for bias is sometimes but not always the same as the test in the judicial land. So with the judiciary, the standard to meet is a reasonable apprehension of bias. Subjective, objective, and it asks whether a reasonable and right-minded person being praised of the circumstances and having thought the matter through would think it more likely than not that the individual is incapable of deciding the matter fairly. And so there's a little bit of a crutch to fall back on I'm not saying that you're biased. I'm just saying anybody looking at it would think you're biased. <laughs> it's way different. But it is an important distinction um, because that's what the law protects, is a reasonable perception of bias because we can't know what's in the decision maker's head. Subjective bias is almost impossible to prove. Reasonable apprehension of bias is much more possible to prove. That's the judicial test. You've probably heard it before, or at least it sounds somewhat familiar. But there's also circumstances where the courts say, look, I don't care that there's a reasonable apprehension of bias here, because the nature of the decision is such that you don't have to seem like you don't favor one side or the other. There, I'm going to say that all you need to satisfy is a closed mind test. That you're at least open to argument and at least open to hear the other side's position. That you haven't so finely determined the issue that you have a closed mind to any contrary arguments. Where does that come up? Well, when the decision is political, really policy in nature. Because you're allowed to favor one policy or one broad political outcome. And if that's the nature of the decision you're being asked to make, we can't say just because we know you like this particular outcome, you're necessarily not going to decide the matter. And so you, know, you think about um, some of the great philosophical, political divides of the day. Um, you know, what comes to mind for me is environmental protections versus 
um, promotion of development and economic benefits. And you know, if, if I run for office saying, we need to open up the north to mining, and there's uh, ample money to be made with these sky-high gold, silver, and copper prices. Um, there's rare metals that are going to be used in all your devices. They're in Canada. We can get them safely. We can get them more ethically than you get them from other places. Um, we need to open that up. And then there's a, you know, some sort of a um, argument that I, I then as a I've become the Minister of Mines, and I, I should be recused from every decision affecting mining. Say, so no, uh, th these, I'm implementing a broad policy. It needs to sort of a closed mind. But if it comes down to a more individual rights adjudication, where it's not asking you to answer a broad policy question, you know, should we elevate economic development over environmental protection? But a more specific question, uh, a more specific individualized rights question, well, then I can't just say, well, my politics are against this person, so I'm not going to give them what they want. You know, if I'm, I may say those are my politics, but if I'm the RTB and the question is whether we're going to evict um, eco-justice from their building. That wouldn't be residential tenancy, but you get the idea. You know, it, it would be a, um, a very different thing to say that I could claim a closed mind test. So if you get the basic idea there that there's different types of decisions, and if it's more political or policy, the court may say you just need to not have a closed mind. If it's more individual rights adjudication, they'll say, look, we want the um, standard that comes from the judicial framework of reasonable apprehension of bias to apply. And you've got the basic idea. What determines where you're going to be on that spectrum? Contextual factors. A review of the whole context, decision maker, nature of decision maker, decision being, or nature of the interest at issue. So there's a broken record element to this. All right, so we're in the world where we have a reasonable apprehension of bias test, which, to be clear, is, is certainly going to be the default. The courts are much more happy to apply a reasonable apprehension of bias test. And you'll have a bit of an uphill role to say it's such a political or policy decision that all you have to do is show not a closed mind. And the book does a nice job, I think, of breaking up how this bias can arise. It identifies four areas, four sort of issues that could give rise to a reasonable bias. It's got a pecuniary or material interest in the outcome of the matter being decided, a personal relationship with those involved in the dispute, prior involvement in or knowledge or information about the matter in dispute, and finally, an attitudinal, attitudinal predisposition towards an outcome. And 
I think it's that last one that strikes as the sort of what comes to mind right away when you think about bias. But it's important to unpack the other three also. So pecuniary or material interest in the outcome of the matter being decided, do you have something to gain from a decision being made for or against this, this litigant? The book has an example of the, um, the Lord Chancellor of England making a decision about a company he was a shareholder in. Uh, can be a problem. Like anything else, these issues arise on a spectrum. It's one thing to be a major shareholder in a small privately held company and then make a decision about that company. It's quite another thing, perhaps, to hold some shares in a mutual fund in Apple and maybe not even know you have those shares. So like anything, you can't just have some hard and fast rule. You, you must have no shares in any company that you're making a decision about. It's all going to be contextual. But the courts are going to ask, look, would a reasonable and right-minded person, having thought this matter through, thinking more likely than not that you're unable to decide the matter fairly because uh, of your pecuniary interest in the outcome of this decision. The book has another example of a less direct one. Um, decision maker owns a company that makes cables that have been used in nuclear power plants in the area where he is asked to approve a new nuclear power plant. And so the argument is, hey, you're going to you're going to be able to sell your cable, so you, you should recuse yourself. The court says that's not direct enough. We don't have enough evidence to tie that in. So again, it's all going to be contextual. I don't think the basic idea that the decision maker having some money in the outcome is difficult to grab your head around, uh, but the question of the degree and the circumstances, of course, is where the devil is. Um, can be non-pecuniary, not money exactly. The book has the example of, uh, it came from the First Nations context of a band council electing to um, evict somebody from a home on a reserve uh, in order to use that home for purposes including housing a family member of one of the council members. And the court said, ah, it's too much, that you've got too much of an interest in this outcome. So if you stand to benefit from the decision being made, this can be a basis for bias. Does that make sense? Yeah. Personal relationship with someone in the dispute is the second factor. I'll move a little more quickly because I am a little behind. The book has the nice example of, uh, again, from the UK House of Lords member making a decision about extraditing Pinochet, the dictator, Chilean dictator, right? And turns out that he is a board member for Amnesty International who's advocating hard for this extradition and his wife works for Amnesty International in some context and that was found to be you know, too much of a personal involvement in the dispute. First, too much of a personal relationship with that entity involved in the dispute. Um, this is again a matter of degree, it can get tricky. Uh, 
as you practice law, you're going to get to know other lawyers, and a lot of them are going to become judges. Where do they cross the line to being, you know, um, it being not the judge not being comfortable deciding a matter you're arguing? It, it varies on the judge. It's almost like you feel that you're like I thought we were better friends than that. You're like you, you think you could be fair? I thought you were my buddy. Oh, like fine, um, but it's it is a problem that that, that it comes up. So the book has this fascinating example also of this decision maker's tenure is about to expire. Fixed term is coming to an end. Hasn't yet been reappointed. If they're not reappointed, then this long administrative process that they're involved in will have to be reheard by somebody else. So one of the litigants writes a letter to the minister and like, hey, reappoint this person, they're great. Um, so then the question is, the fact this person's advocating for your job and now you're gonna decide a case involving them, does that raise a reasonable pressure of bias? The court said no, and they said it doesn't, they said, you know, on the facts of that case, that it's, it's not enough. Um, but if you were to otherwise show that there was some strong sort of booster role that this person is playing for this part, for this tribunal member, it could be a problem. So again, it's all about the, the contextual factors. It's all about looking at the full circumstances and considering whether the reasonable person is gonna say, I don't think you can decide this fairly because of that personal relationship. So prior knowledge is an interesting one. Um, prior knowledge gets at the idea that, what am I supposed to know about the dispute that I'm deciding. And fundamentally, it's A, what everybody knows. I mean, I can't pretend that I haven't heard of the thing that's in the news. You know, if you're doing the extradition of the Huawei executive, you may have heard of it before you're asked to decide on it, but that doesn't, you know, that's okay. And I also am supposed to know what the parties tell me. But if I know other things beyond that, I've got prior knowledge about the specific dispute that goes beyond what everybody else knows, or what the parties have elected to tell me, well, that could be a problem. You may not be a biased decision maker. You may let some of your prior knowledge overwhelm the facts that the parties tell you, and, and your prior knowledge may be incomplete as well. So the case the book talks about is one that I had planned on having you assigned, and I hope you saw the email that I'm not asking you to read Leeway Come anymore. Uh, but fascinating case. Leeway Come, just the facts of it are really something else. There is like this, do you do Aboriginal law like as a first year course now? Is that, that's great. It's like all I practice, I never took it. So it's, I'm really glad to do that. So we become is um, these two bands uh, basically say we got the wrong. There's a, there's a mix up, and we're both supposed to have. There's two reserves. Both bands say they should have both of them, and the other one should not have either one of them. And there was a you know administrative mix up and assigning the reserves back in like the 1890s or 1900s. On his facts, a fascinating case. Subject of a 9 nothing Supreme Court of Canada decision. And then it comes out after the case is decided. 
that Justice Binney, when he worked for the Department of Justice, had been involved in this very litigation. He had, as a supervising lawyer, been involved in meetings and on memos about this litigation. So did that give rise to a reasonable apprehension of bias? And the court went through it in great detail and said, in the circumstances, his, the nature of his personal involvement was minimal. He oversaw tons of different cases. You know, and we don't find these facts that were known to him that are salient and outside of what was before the court anyways. So they go through the facts and say it's okay. Um, you want to be, you, you want to not overread We Wake Home, though, to say that that type of behavior, being a lawyer involved in a case and then deciding it later as an adjudicator, is going to be often okay. The fact that the case had already been decided by a unanimous Supreme Court of Canada goes a long way, I think, to explaining the outcome. And I think if it had been raised before the case was heard, he would have recused himself for sure. Like, definitely would not have heard that case. Um, but this will be a problem that you may run into if you ever make that leap from um, being a lawyer to being a decision maker, uh, especially if you work in government or for a big institution. The number of files you touch can be really big. And this also can be a problem for conflicts when you move from one firm or one, um, one entity to another. That you, you want to you know, try to keep stock of the knowledge that you have and make sure that when you're tasked with deciding a case, you're not bringing that knowledge in. And alternatively, if you can make an argument that a decision maker has some outside knowledge, you know, that, that's a, a decent bias argument to make. They were not successful in We Wake Home. I would have run that argument, you know, 10 times out of 10. And it was a good argument that was raised about the problems there. Um, you know, I think should be read as the exception that proves the rule, almost, that generally speaking, unless you fall into extreme circumstances like the We Wake Home facts, having acted in a case in any capacity as a lawyer should disqualify you. Yeah. Absolutely, and I think it, I don't. I think his position was I didn't realize that this was one of the cases I touched on. It was so long ago, okay. and that's the thing with Aboriginal litigation is like my God, it moves slowly. Like these cases can start in like the eighties and be resolved in twenty fifteen. Like they they can take twenty thirty years to work their way through, um, and so you. It's kind of fair that in that context, you might not remember that you were involved. And I do know, like I worked at DOJ, and there's these committees that you go to where all the senior lawyers are there, and they hear about every big case that's currently hot. Um, and there'll be 15 cases that week, and 15 cases the next week. I think it's in that kind of context that he was involved. So kind of easy to, to overlook. Uh, but I think if you had asked him, he'd say, I should have known, I should have figured it out, should have raised a flag, this is a DOJ litigation, I should have done some more due diligence, should have raised it. Uh, but the question, you know, was ex post facto, after the end of the decision, what do we do? 
But yeah, certainly onus on the decision maker to raise that because if, how's the litigant going to know it? Quite often, yeah. I was also wondering, um, the, this issue about bias, it's still heard in front of the Supreme Court of Canada and then Binning's just not part of the decision on whether or not to be that's right. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Right. He recused himself from the decision of his own bias. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. Um, I think that might be a different case. I'm not sure if that's, yeah. Yeah, I think that might, that might be two different cases. Um, all right, so, I mean, it's just hard. Like, I'm really glad we becomes nine nothing. If it was a five, four case and there was many in the majority, this would be much more controversial matter. But, you know, the basic point you want to take away, prior involvement in the case, can lead to knowledge that you should have and you want to be very careful about that. Um, the final factor for this individual bias, they describe as an attitudinal predisposition in the outcome. Something which shows this person just by attitude favors one side or the other. Um, what's the first case that might pop to your mind for that type of a thing? You might think Baker. Yeah, you might think Baker. The, um, the comments from the, uh, the Moran, whatever the guy's name was, the, uh, one of the decision makers, really does show an attitudinal predisposition you know, that affects the way this person might decide this case. Um, where are you going to find evidence of attitudinal predisposition? That can be really, really hard. Um, you know, generally, judges aren't going to say that they're predisposed against you. Uh, you're going to look for sort of circumstantial evidence. Um, you can look for comments in court or out of court. And the Crutchian case uh, showed at least a predis or a, a deciding of before the all the facts came in, and they relied on outside of court commentary. Um, inside of court, the judge can just say things that are, you know, show that they're prejudiced or biased. Um, I think it fortunately probably happens less, but um, in the First Nations context, some of the things that are said or were said in court um, are shocking. Like the, the outright racism that, you know, can be faced. And, and, you know, not the First Nations context only, uh, but, but certainly there, there's endless examples if you, if you want to find them. Um, but it can also be a little more subtle, like overwhelmingly interjecting on behalf of one side of the case and not the other could be a problem. So the judge sits there, you know, Quiet as a church mouse while one side is giving their evidence, and when the other side's giving their evidence, takes over the role of cross examination. And uh, you can't expect me to believe that. That's, you're full of it, that type of an attitude. That type of thing happens. And um, there's a 
there's a fine line. I mean, judges are allowed to question one side more vigorously, but it can cross over into a position where it seems like there's not just a vigorous examination of the merits, but actually a disposition towards one side or the other. Um, and the court also talks about social media as being a potentially ripe source of bias arguments. And that's absolutely true. Judges very rarely have social media presences, but some do. And in this modern age, a lot of judges who are newly appointed have a past social media presences that you can look into. Um, so they really run the gamut. Like Judge Lauren Sawson was a big Twitter user. Now he's a judge of the Ontario Court of Appeal. And his is the most just delightfully nerdy law stuff that like you're not going to find a whole lot there. Um, but some judges come with a more sort of firebrandy, politically involved um, positioning in a more politically involved uh, Twitter feed. You know, it might be out there. You kind of have a look and see if it's there. My favorite is Judge Lindsay Lister, um, judge of the BC Supreme Court. Great, great person. Um, and just like the world's biggest Doctor Who fan. And so if you go to her Twitter feed, it's like 10,000 tweets long about Doctor Who exclusively. <laughs> like, if you can find it, I'm not sure if it's still up, but it's something else. And so if there was a case that in any way went against the British doctor, she would have to accuse herself. Um, but it's, it's a right area to look. And you've got to be aware, you know, as a lawyer, of what you're posting. And you have to be aware of whether there's something out there that may show the decision maker uh, cannot be perfectly biased, or perfectly unbiased. Um, things to raise. I think what I'll do is, um, I may just finish off the Kretchen case briefly now. Um, because we introduced it and it falls nicely into bias. And then I'll pick up on institutional bias briefly on Friday. So in the Kretchen case, um, there are two reasons I assigned it were one, I liked the application of the Baker factors. And I am disappointed in a sense as to how the structure of these lectures go in the sense that I, I go through Baker, um, touch a bit on application of Baker factors, when I get into bias, I get into lay, uh, these other issues, which if you were to do a pie chart of how much they matter for sort of procedural fairness arguments, I'm kind of getting Baker and its application short shrift. Um, we should be looking at more applications of the Baker factors. So when we read cases in the future that have a Baker factor component, I may touch on that as we, as we go, um, because it's important to see how these factors are applied to really understand them. 
But the other reason I like the Crutchian case, of course, is the, um, the bias argument. The, the Baker factor run through, um, I won't go over right now, but I, I hope that that was a useful part of that case for you, and it's probably worth rereading as you um, revise for your you know, exam on Baker. The, the bias argument um, you know, is sort of fascinating because it's an interesting sort of predisposition towards an outcome argument that comes from the idea that at a certain point, uh, the goose was cooked, the decision was made, and there was a, um, an unwillingness to, to hear fully the opposing side. So you saw a, a deep analysis of whether this should be a closed mind or a reasonable apprehension of bias test. And the big argument for the closed mind test here is a bit different than the pure policy political basis to say closed mind. Here they say, well look, when you're just investigating somebody, and that's all this is, an investigation without independent legal consequences, you ought to be able to um, not have to have a, a pure freedom from bias, but just not have a closed mind. And the court said, I agree with you that investigation if that's what's at issue, will tend to have lower procedural protections than final adjudication of a right. I don't agree with you that it gets you to a closed mind test in these circumstances. They say, rather, you know, to look at what's at stake, look at the effect that these findings can have on someone's reputation, Look at the whole process that surrounds this inquiry, which is very judicial. In these circumstances, I want you to be free from a reasonable apprehension of bias. So again, just getting back to the idea that where you are on that spectrum, closed mind versus reasonable apprehension of bias as the minimal standard required, will, will involve a contextual analysis. Um, and then just really quickly, I know I'm keeping you a minute late, but I'll, I'll just finish this up. Um, in essence, you have three arguments raised. First, they say, look, your legal counsel is closely related to Crutchian's political opponent. Isn't that a problem? And the court says, well, if I was thinking about his bias, maybe. But it's, the, it's not him, it's the, it's the commissioner. It's, it's, it's Gomery that I'm concerned about. So I'm gonna say that's irrelevant to the question of whether Gomery himself had a reasonable apprehension of bias or the commission generally had a reasonable apprehension of bias. And I think that you, you can sort of accept that a bit um, coming from judges, thinking about another judge, because you, know, you get a law clerk who's a strongly conservative individual and supports a conservative causes. It doesn't mean that you as a judge are going to be biased. Uh, so the, the trying to leap from your 
staff's political views into your own biases, the court says, that's gonna be very hard to do, and here it's not even to the level of relevancy. So strike one, you don't get any uh, reasonable apprehension of bias through looking at the lawyers who works for you for the tribunal's political views. Um, but second, they say, like your commission spokesperson wrote a book, you wrote the foreword for it, and you approved in the foreword of what the book said, which said something like, you know, this is correct or exact, using the French. And he has you commenting that before all the evidence was in, you heard one piece of evidence that, aha, I have everything we need. They say, that's a problem. And then they say, you went to the media, and you gave this interview, and you made these statements, which were strongly suggestive of a disposition against one of the litigants before you during the very process itself. And they say, look, in light of everything, a reasonable person is going to say those last two things are a problem. So what do they do? They, in essence, strike any findings from the report about Chrétien himself. The report can stand generally, but as it relates to Chrétien, those findings are strong. All right, so we got through most of what I hope to get through today. We'll talk about institutional bias, delay, um, and um, the, the Seiko issue about knowing the case to meet next class. I, I would really focus on Blanco, focus on Taseko. Both really interesting cases. Blanco, just to give you a little preview, I'm very excited about, is going to be revisited by the Supreme Court on November 7th, I believe. Um, and I'm going to, I think we'll have a nice chance to really delve into that reconsideration of Blanco at the end of the course. It'll be a, a nice treat to um, read some of the factums, watch some of the hearing, and get a sense as to how that's all happening. But to set the groundwork for that, give Blanco a good read. It's an important case. Um, and we'll, we'll pick this up on Friday. Thank you, everyone.